Hey guys, it's the Out of Focus Podcast, episode 44, with your host, Will Malone. In this episode, I talk to Janessa Steele. We talk about mental illness, the American dream, and Enneagrams. Janessa is a therapist, so she talks about, you know, just her job, um, the art of listening. Uh, we, we, go down, we go down quite a rabbit hole. It's a very dense episode. There's a lot to glean here for pretty much everybody. Um, I, of course, connect it to photography because there's just so much valuable stuff in just the concept of listening for a photographer or especially a wedding photographer such as myself or a portrait photographer, somebody who has to command the tone of a scene so that your subject feels more comfortable when a camera um, is there making everything feel unnatural and we kind of get meta because podcasts and microphones do the same thing so there's just a lot to glean as a creative person but just a person in general um so yeah it's just a great episode i had a blast talking to her i'm sure she will come back because we could have done three podcasts talking about this stuff but yeah very valuable episode very very valuable really enjoyed it and uh just uh, just so you know, I mentioned this on Instagram stories. Um, I'm getting a new sound, like I've got a new sound set up here. So uh, if you notice anything weird, that's why I'm trying to get used to it. I think I, <laughs> as I was editing it, I figured out what my problem is. Um, this episode sounds pretty good. Um, I don't want to like point out, like this is a self-fulfilling thing where I'm saying like, hey, just so you know if it sounds weird, which you may not have noticed, but now you're going to notice it because I mentioned it. So, you know, that's just... Uh, that's, that's great. So, uh, anyway, uh, I put out a newsletter every Friday, so go check that out, the Out of Focus newsletter. Uh, go to willmalone.com slash focus to sign up. And again, I know you're not signed up, uh, because there's more listeners to this podcast than subscribers, so go sign up. It is in lieu of an Out of Focus website right now. Uh, and then go follow me on Instagram, at willmalone. And I post all the time, and uh, it's it's quite an ADD fest over there. Um, but yeah, I post all day, and that's where you can get updates about this podcast and anything else. So, without further ado, enjoy the show. How, like, do you not record your therapy sessions at all? No. Really? Are you not allowed to? Mm-mm. I feel like in movies they do that, though. No? No. I mean, that's like a huge confidentiality issue. But, like, but like to, I don't know, like, why, why am I thinking, like, in movies they would, like, record a session? What's Pro- the purpose of that? Probably because it's... Research? No, probably because it's a good movie device. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, there there are there are rare occasions where you might get special, like you'd have to do an, a special informed consent to record a, a session. The patient would have to know about it ahead of time. If you were under some sort of supervision where you were going to have a supervisor go back with you through your therapy session and kind of assess your skills and where you could improve. But that would be the only thing I could imagine so do you, like because i'm trying like if you had your own like thing you wanted to know like your mm-hmm. own like you were working on like say like a thesis or something mm-hmm. like you were trying to research humans mm-hmm. <laughs> or like a behavior pattern or something yeah. are you allowed to kind of like have a side project like that 
and yeah. utilizes your job to like write well, a book or okay that is actually that's a good question a lot of therapists wind up with that question because we hear some of the most interesting stories that probably anyone ever hears and a lot of people wind up wanting to write a book based on their experiences and I was actually listening to a podcast recently by um what is her name Lori Gottlieb I think is how you mm-hmm. say her last name who I believe maybe writes for the New York Times she's a columnist somewhere and she wrote a book based on her therapy experiences, but she didn't use current patients because she, and she used people that she had informed that she'd gotten permission to use their story, remove identifying information. And she wrote a book on not only their therapy experiences, but on her, um, her own experiences as a patient as well, because she went through therapy herself. But one of the things that she said is that she would never use someone that she was currently working with, because then there's the temptation to make the therapy about you rather than about your patient and what they actually need, you're, you're almost kind of trying to make it into a good story right. rather than really listening for what is, what's there and what's needed. So it's almost something that you, ca- you can't do unless you're doing it in retrospect because you're, otherwise you're using your patients as an experiment, that's, which is completely inappropriate yeah, that's and such, unhelpful. <laughs> that's such like a huge problem too in like the photography world. Like doing, uh, like Humans of New York is one of those things yeah. that I feel is kind of that. It's like, it's become such a famous project now that I'm like, at some point your success is based on exploiting others. Hmm. And so I'm like, you know, I don't want to question the the genuine nature of the guy who does it. Mm-hmm. I think he's really finds it important and likes talking to the people and interviews it. But it's like it's a commercial thing now, you know. Yeah. And like the biggest problem with like new photographers is like going around taking pictures like homeless people and stuff. Oh, my God. Which gosh. is like the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like. You want to use photography to appreciate humans and the human condition, dare I say. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, at a certain point, it's like, when when is it like a lab rat situation? Right, yeah. Look at the devastating beauty of this person's pain. Yeah, exactly. So awful. Yeah. Exactly. So, So do you, like, I guess, like, where's, where's the balance in that for you because like you are interested in these people and i mean Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know how deep you can talk about your job Mm -hmm. i know that that's like you know but like you are interested in psychology i guess is the idea and so like i mean you probably get some sort of thrill out of it Mm -hmm. like because you enjoy it so like do you find yourself like struggling with that kind of like talking to this person as a person to solve their problem or talking because you're just like interested in like what their deal is. Well, I, I think the, the two are the same thing and I think they have to be the same thing in therapy, which, you know, we've, we've been talking a lot about listening and that I believe is one of the things that makes me a good listener is that I'm genuinely curious. You have to be genuinely curious. And there's so much about helping another person tell their own story that just winds up being therapeutic without you even trying that if you can ask really good and they don't have to be loaded questions. I mean, they can just be really good, simple questions to guide somebody in describing kind of their inner processes and, and what makes them the way that they are to you. Then that curiosity actually is what winds up 
helping to solve the problem that they came to you with in the first place. Which, yeah, and that's that's the thing for me. I feel like there's a difference in asking questions, though, because you're curious and asking questions to, like, help solve their problem. Like, I guess just for me personally, I'm mm-hmm. not a therapist. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk to somebody and you, like, they tell you a story. And, yeah. And, you know, I mean, just me, again, I'm like, man, that's pretty juicy. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know I want to know yeah. more about the story. Yeah, sure. But. Well, and there is... There is a line, I mean, and I think you you kind of have to learn the balance of, you know, a- am I asking for information that I don't really need to know? Because that is a temptation in therapy to, to kind of follow a train of thought or a story that may not be relevant, but it just sounds like it's going to be juicy. And so let's go talk about that. But it winds up not relating to the reason that you came to, to see me at all. And there are times where that's appropriate because you're also trying to build rapport with the person and just get a, a fuller picture of of who they are and build a relationship with them because therapy is a relationship you have to have a good established rapport with the person for it to work but so there are times to kind of back off of that um and try to bring it back into focus on on what their goal is or what their problem is but i, th- I think that the two overlap more than you might think it, it, it's kind of like carefully directed curiosity yeah like you almost have to create your own style of asking people questions oh yeah yeah and everyone does it differently too which is why you know there i mean i've had patients who just haven't really meshed with my style or who have come to me from another therapist and didn't really mesh with theirs and it's not that we were necessarily doing bad therapy or even that our theoretical knowledge was so different from one another but there's there's just something about a person's presence and the way that they inquire that works better for some people than others. Yeah, and that and that's why I'm so fascinated with like the idea of listening and maybe it's mm-hmm. just because I'm I'm finally actually understanding what that means because I am such a bad listener generally. Mm. Um and just growing up because it's like listening is let me think so like Anna used to tell me my wife used to tell me this story about how she went to this like session one time this like counseling session Mm -hmm. not just because she you know I think had to do it for school or something like that to like do it was some assigned thing and she goes and she was so annoyed by how they were asking questions because it was like they were just reading a list of questions yeah and they this person obviously like hadn't developed a voice hadn't mm-hmm. developed mm-hmm. really they were more like s- sticking to the book yeah. kind of thing and they could hear like she would respond to the questions but it wasn't about what she was saying it was mm-hmm. let's get to the next question yeah. and that's that's a problem for a lot of people because like like I'm a, I'm a tangential person. So mm-hmm. like you, you, you talk about a topic that pings in my mind and I'll just, I'll be gone. You know, I'm not, I don't care about the next question. Mm-hmm. I'm not like trying to follow like a list. Right. Um, and that's just how my mind works because I'm like a, like a dog. Like I'm like a oh, squirrel, mm-hmm. you know, like I can't, but basically like, I don't know. In your experience, did you have to like, did you recognize that in yourself? Like when you first started doing this stuff, like how did you teach yourself to mm. actually, 
I mean, I feel like you're probably more naturally gifted at it than I am, but like certainly like the mechanics of learning how to do this, like did not come supernaturally. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, that's a really fun question to answer because it's making me realize that there has been a change that's taken place. Even, even over the past year of doing therapy, my style of listening has changed and, and the way that I've learned to listen has changed. And you're right that there's, there's a part of it that I think is, does come more naturally to some people than others. And part of the reason I wound up becoming a therapist is because I started listening to feedback from other people of, oh, you know, you, you really are a good listener or, wow, just getting that out there with you really helped. And so I had this idea that being able to listen well was powerful in itself, that there's something about just being heard that is very therapeutic, that alleviates pain and helps to solve problems. But I think kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about how when you first started podcasting, there was some nervousness there and you were stuck more on, okay, how am I going to do this? Yeah. That is exactly how I started as a therapist too. And that's not listening. That, right. That's right, like, right, right. That's only like that's self that's like looking inward. To but some I extent. also think it's the natural place where most people have to start to become good at whatever their craft is or whatever their profession is. Because you have to know the mechanics of it. But you have to go through it enough that it becomes a part of you where it's sort of just going on in the background rather than being the focus itself. Because like we were saying about curiosity, I don't think so much in my therapy sessions anymore of like oh man I've got to get I've got to get back to the point here I have more of a natural instinct of okay that question isn't going to be helpful this one is but I'm not reading from a list anymore like I was when I started when I started I knew that there were certain things that I had to hit in a session and I would more mechanically go back to those things and be pretty uptight about having to get to them and now it's a lot easier for me to facilitate a conversation and kind of help gently guide it back in the direction that it needs to go. I also thought when I started as a therapist that therapy depended a whole lot more on me than it actually does. I was really concerned about asking the right questions and even interjecting the right insights at the right time. And now my favorite therapy sessions, the ones that I think are the best for the patient and the most fun for me as a therapist and the most fulfilling are ones where I hardly have to say anything where I can, the person is there to do the work. I, I talk about therapy as a partnership that that there's some, there's some things that I'm going to bring as a therapist and with my professional background and what I've studied and whatever else. And there's a whole lot that the patient's going to bring because they're the one that actually has to do the work. They have to go home with the problem. Right. I don't. So the best sessions are where they're ready to do the work. And if I see them either getting distracted or kind of faltering along the way or having a question or not being sure how to express something, that's when I can jump in with something really simple, either another question of, well, you know, you said that your brother felt this way about it. Did you talk to him about it? And sometimes just asking about someone that's kind of on the periphery of their life and asking for that perspective can take it in a whole new direction. Or um, I can just validate something like, it sounds like you really, um, this was really a meaningful experience for you. You know, something that just sounds simple when you just say it out of context like that, but that just tells them that I'm kind of still there. Yes. And can keep it going. So what's your goal in, in these sessions? Like, 
obviously you're not going to solve the world's problems no, in not. in <laughs> however long the session mm-hmm. is like what like usually i mean you know people come in with a billion different issues mm-hmm. but like what's your what's your like main goal usually yeah. like what what do you what are you trying to what are you trying to get at? <laughs> there, there is no usually. And that is something that has been, it's been intriguing about being a therapist, but has also been frustrating is there are some days where I'm like, this is so cool. There's so much variety to the human experience. And I'm so, I'm get to be so many different things for different people throughout the day. And there are other times where I'm like, well, therapy is a real weird thing. What on earth is even going on here? Because there's really, there are, there are certain there are certain frameworks that I use for therapy, but it winds up being such a moving target. So there really isn't a usually. I mean, there there are people who come to me, honestly, just for ongoing supportive therapy who are chronically mentally ill and um, maybe don't have a whole lot of, of healthy social supports and just check in with me every couple of months just because it kind of keeps them well. It's like mental health maintenance. And there are people who come to see me very regularly who are working on um, either changing a specific behavior or gaining a different way of coping because they realized that whatever they were going to wasn't healthy for them. So there are some people with really concrete things that they're trying to change. And there are other people who are just trying to stay well. There are people who are trying to learn about their illness for the first time. It, it is a big variety. How do you not just like see people as customers to some extent? Like, since this is your job, Hmm. you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, therapy session for most people is like, you know, they give advice to a friend or a friend gives Mm -hmm. them advice and it's like a very off the cuff Mm -hmm. kind of like non-normal thing. And I mean, you may not feel this at all, but I'd be like, you know, if I was routinely talking to people about problems, it Mm -hmm. would become so normalized that mm-hmm. I may just start like, uh, oh, bring in the next one, mm-hmm, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, y- y- you know what I mean? I mean, that's kind of like really like making it sound much yeah. colder than it is, but no, I mean, but that's a real problem though. That, that, um, let's see, there are like three different things that I want to respond to that you just said. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll respond to all of them. So, um, shoot, I can't remember the first one, but, you're you're kind of getting into another important area for mental health workers in general, which is how do you stay well in an environment where, I mean, people don't come to see you because they're feeling good most right. of the time, you know, right. that that's the rare session where someone comes in and says, I'm feeling great today. All this wonderful stuff happened in my life. I mean, people are coming to you to bring their problems. And even if they were having a good day, they're not going to talk about the good day. They're going to talk about last week when they weren't having a good day. So that is a huge issue in mental health care. Um, The rate of burnout and even the rate of depression among social workers, which is what I am by degree, is huge. Um, It's disproportionate to the rest of the population because you do start to see so, so much pain and so many problems that you start to distance yourself from it. And... I personally have struggled in, in various mental health jobs that I've had of just, just feeling a disconnect from not so much from, from my clients and from their problems, but just from other people that I wind up interacting with after work. If I have dealt with 
multiple people with extremely complex trauma histories all day long and then someone comes to me and is like i can't believe what my (laughs) friend did today i'm i'm kind of like i have to really pay attention to my face and to my responses because i'm i'm most likely going to just stare at them and be like or like when college students complain about finals yeah i'm like please call call me when when life actually gets yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) which is a really unhealthy attitude, honestly, because I, I need to not be in the complex trauma all the time. I need just yeah. regular, ordinary day-to-day experiences too. Um, but I think that that's a really important thing for therapists and others who work in those, those places with a lot of trauma to be aware of in themselves is when you're starting to feel that, that people are just customers or just numbers you have to take a step back and reorient yourself because you're starting to experience signs of either burnout or there's there's something called compassion fatigue. There's something called secondary trauma. Compassion fatigue. Compassion That's fatigue. a thing. Yes, it is. Where you you are so connected to the problems of so many people for so long that it just totally wears you out. Man. And to, to go further into that secondary trauma, you can start to display the same trauma reactive symptoms that your patients like with PTSD have because you're hearing it. So you can, you can start to have those symptoms just as a result of being, you're you're also hearing traumatic things all the Mm -hmm. time, which, you know, you have to like picture them in your mind Mm -hmm. to some extent. So I'm sure that would, so like what's the expiration date then on most people? That's a great question. I, I have seen some expiration dates and I have seen some people who just burn out and then stay. Uh, yeah yeah um because this is this is a fairly new conversation for mental health workers too of how do you care for yourself while you're caring for other people this conversation wasn't happening 10 or 20 years ago and so there are people who have stayed in the field who didn't really have that care when they were going into caring for other people yeah and now they're there and it's where they've always been but it's a job yeah it's a it's become a job which is okay but the way in which it has become a job and they've disconnected from it is also painful and causing probably other issues in their lives too so that's that's actually a a a big thing that i see a need for is therapists and therapy and making sure that you're as well connected to those supports as your patients are which there are a lot of reasons that that doesn't happen was that a therapist has a therapist Mm mm-hmm and then that therapist needs a therapist. Yes. That seems like a nightmare. There's there's a there's a something I think maybe I saw it in Instagram meme or something <laughs> that, that where a patient said that her therapist called their therapist her grand therapist. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, I kind of get it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so like I don't know. I mean, I've heard that with like ceramicists that like you, you can, you can only do it so long before like the chemicals and like you've bre- yeah. breathed in so many yep. things that it becomes deadly. Yeah. So there are some jobs and even photography. Like I think like around like age 40, mm-hmm. I'm not going to want to like run around like mm-hmm. it, like your body has a limit to how much you yeah. really do. And I just watch photographers like always retire at a certain age because it's like, you know, shooting weddings or whatever is like, 
next like just painful it's like you get arthritis i mean just like i mean people aren't getting arthritis at 40 but i know a lot of people who are like yeah i'm tired i'm done Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. on to something else and they start some other company or go like work for somebody or whatever Mm -hmm. i see it all the time and it's like maybe maybe this is something we need to move toward as a society is being more comfortable with reinvention Mm. because Hmm. maybe maybe you everybody does need to take a break for a little bit Mm -hmm. Or some people don't need to be doing something for a super long time. Yeah. Because, I mean, unless you're like a Navy SEAL, most people don't have the, like, enthusiasm long term mm-hmm. for something, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and I think uh, there's a problem, too, in the idea that enthusiasm is what carries you long term into through something. Well, yeah. Because, I mean, cause, yeah, yeah like, true. eventually your enthusiasm does run out. The and honeymoon that, that's, period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's even how I kind of started, not in mental health really, but in the whole kind of social, social work, social justice kind of field. I mean, I, I started being interested in that really young and I was really enthusiastic and wanted to start all these programs and wanted to do all this stuff. And I like ran into a wall really fast. It just became really discouraged. And I think that was really the best thing that could have happened because I realized that, enthusiasm wasn't going to be the thing that made it last yeah yeah because that does run out so quickly but but i think you're right too about reinvention that leaving a career especially one that well and this this may just be true across the board but i see in mind there's kind of a a moral value attached to a job like this like oh you, you must be such a good person i just i don't see how you could do that it must be so hard and there so there's almost a moral badge and therefore if you leave the field you've it's it's viewed as as kind of a failure at least internally it's viewed as a failure i don't think it should be i think i very well could at some point say okay well that's what i had to give of that time to do something new yeah yeah which i do think would be difficult for me for a number of reasons but i think that it's conceivable and i think that people haven't been told that that is a viable option and so sometimes they stay too long yeah and i don't know i and you know of course let's let's get turn this back around to me here uh mm-hmm. you know of course come on good uh, listening yeah exactly <laughs> but no i think about that with photography it's like you know i see a day where i don't want to do what i'm doing mm-hmm. all the time i know that's going to happen you know and but like when you when people are so eager to like label somebody as something like this is what you are i know yeah and and like they just have to have a title for it it's like you know i'm like i'm gonna have to forever explain that maybe i won't be a photographer forever you know and that's something that like is like like just what i am defined as to people you know and like that's and it doesn't matter. No one cares if you get a new job really, mm-hmm. but we have this like, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's so like not okay for whatever mm-hmm. reason mm-hmm. to reinvent yeah. transition. Yep. Do something. It's like you gave up. It's yeah. like you failed. Well, and we take so much of our identity now from work, which is really problematic. And I mean, it's a, it's a societal cultural problem right now, but it's, obviously I'm a product of my own society and culture. It's a, it's a big struggle for me. Like I, and this actually kind of ties back into some of, some of the thoughts about how do you last somewhere? How do you prevent Mm -hmm. burnout by not 
defining yourself and making your work your end all be all and where you find all your fulfillment. I, st- I struggle right. with that every day because I want to label myself in some way. I want I want to say, well, I am social worker yeah. like, and define myself as worker rather than person. And yeah. that is one of the things that is so tempting, but it, it reduces my satisfaction overall with my work and the rest of my life if I don't have a more comprehensive view of myself, that this is not yeah. my identity (laughs) preach no it's like we need to be more fluid with how our lives work you know like like we're so compartmentalized with like what we do Mm -hmm. you know i mean like uh for instance like greg your husband Mm -hmm. like i think he has a view of himself in that way where he he is a lawyer by day but he like interacts with people outside of that so much that he's just kind of He's just floating on life, you know, yep. he's doesn't have that. <laughs> he doesn't have that just like I'm lawyer, you know, he's, Definitely. he's, and so like, I don't know. It's like part of the reason that like when I hang out with friends, I like quit carrying my camera with me mm. because I was like, no, this is like, mm-hmm. I'm just like a character now, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's something we were talking about a few weeks ago when we were talking about like the American dream, mm-hmm. like, the American dream kind of sucks if you think about it. Like, (laughs) like, okay. So you have to like work your face off when you're, when you're younger, you have to work the most Mm -hmm. and then you have to just like, just stick it out until you're, you know, 60, 70. Mm -hmm. And then you can finally be free Mm -hmm. when, you know, you're already having tons of medical issues probably already. If you even make it that far and then you can finally live this relaxing life that, is only fun for like Mm -hmm. three months because that's right you know (laughs) vacation gets boring too yeah and then you sit in a recliner and die you know we see a huge uptick in depression once people retire oh my gosh i can't imagine because your purpose has been working to get to that end for so long i mean if if you even had the opportunity to work toward that quote-unquote american dream in the first place i mean that there's all kinds of issues with that idea anyway because so many people don't even have access to it in the first place but it's even for those that do it's just a mirage (laughs) yeah it's like it's like this like a carrot on a stick that's just like over your head it's awful but it's not it's not that great if you break it down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm like well if i want to go on a cross-country road trip i'd rather do it now while i'm young you know although i do see kind of a problematic idea forming for us too, because I think we've seen the people ahead of us chasing that American dream and then not being satisfied and being depressed in retirement and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now we feel the pressure of, oh my goodness, I must live my best life now. And I have to have right. ultimate satisfaction in my job now. It has to be my <laughs> life. I think that's where I, our identity issues with work come in is we've got to have the dream now then. And somehow work has to be a part of it. Yeah. It's like a overcorrection. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, okay, therapist, then what's your suggestion? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This, I'm actually glad that you asked this because this allows me to make another point that I had forgotten to make earlier, which is I have discovered that being a therapist, you referred to, you know, most people think of it as well. Okay. You're really good at giving advice. Right. Therapy is almost never giving advice, (laughs) which is kind of a relief because it means I don't always have to have the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you think about, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like that. May, yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Cause I think, and I think I thought of it that way at first too. And, and that's, that's where some of the pressure was coming on myself when I first started doing this. But 
and that's kind of the feedback you you get initially going into is, oh, you give really good advice. Maybe you should be a therapist. And that's a complete misunderstanding of what therapy really is because the focus is way more on you. So if, if I were going to help you find that answer, <laughs> right? I wouldn't just be like, well, here's what I think maybe the answer is. No, because it doesn't matter what I think the answer is. I would ask a lot more questions about you and what you want out of life and what motivates you and where you get your satisfaction. And I'd probably dig around in your thought processes about it a little bit and that's smart. So start questioning like, some things. It's more about who you're speaking, like yes. individuals than uh, blanket advice, which is like, Definitely. which is like kind of all of like Instagram is like the worst version of a therapist. Oh, yeah. It's just like, here's a meme that's like, you know, yes. live your dream or whatever. So I have to admit, I do follow some of those. Well, of course but... <laughs> we all do. And it's, some, but yes, it's, and it's very simplistic. Yeah. It's very simplistic. <laughs> and, but like, that's, that's really what listening yeah. is too, is like, uh, one thing that I realized is like, don't go in with a plan for the conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like don't assume w- what somebody's going to say mm-hmm. and come up with your answers. Like don't prepare answers. Yeah. No, you can't be prepared. For you got to like learn to like ride a wave, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that's like hard. Yeah. That's like, that's like something you have to like learn. Mm-hmm. So like, man like i'm I'm filled with so much anxiety just thinking about like your job like i, I can't like really because i feel like it's so similar to what we're I, I mean it, there are definitely a lot of of things that are different and it's for a different purpose but it really is similar to this like right now you're facilitating a conversation with me and you're trying to understand what i know about something but the stakes are so low <laughs> <laughs> i i will admit i work with very high stakes at times but yeah, I mean, like, it, it, it is a, it can be a similar skill set. It's kind of a conversational skill set. Yeah, well, and I think, I don't know. I think too, like my my problem is is like I talk too much, and so like mm. I have to, like I'm working trying to work really hard on like, like uh, balancing that because I mm-hmm. always have just like a thousand things yeah. to say at any given moment, yeah. and it's hard not to just like let that just explode out yeah. everywhere. Because if you would do that, like if I would do that as a therapist, that, oh my man, I just thought it's a really smart thing to say. I better interrupt yeah. this person. I might totally break wherever they were going with their processing, which would totally defeat the purpose. Because what's important is what's happening in their mind, not what's happening in mine. And you could miss something amazing. Yeah. Well, not amazing, yep. but something like no, that really, would yeah. change the, the course of, mm-hmm. that they may even have their own epiphany of some yeah. kind. Yeah, that's true, Cause, man. Because some of what we what we talk about doing in therapy, and particularly the kind that I usually gravitate toward, is um, it's called cognitive restructuring, which is basically your 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 mind has paths that it normally takes, mm-hmm. and we're trying to kind of get it to go a different way, and and see something in a new way, or instead of going toward the negative lens all the time, which is really, really common. What if you switched something about the way you're telling yourself that story about yourself to see if you can, can see it in a little bit more positive way. And that really is a a process that happens in the brain where you're, you're literally getting different patterns of connection to happen. And so if you interrupt that and kind of chop it up, you can, you can keep those connections from happening as quickly and kind of interfere with the process. So you're almost trying to create a rhythm. You're like, mm-hmm. you're you're trying to like, 
like I don't know make music out of people's thoughts in a way because you're mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like and I guess you know there's there's so there's so much to glean there for a photographer because like if you want them to pose in a natural way mm. you have to kind of like you have you have to get people to feel comfortable it's like yeah it's like you getting in front of this mic you instantly felt like okay everything's more rigid yeah like this is uncomfortable something's yes. amiss we can't just have a casual conversation yeah. and then like in photography it's like if you're having a camera pointed at you uh-huh. And then being told to act natural. <laughs> right. And being told to act natural, it just doesn't work. So yeah. you have to like talk people into like almost get people to forget that mm-hmm. this is anything weird. Yes. And like almost create a different environment. Yeah. And that is like something that that's a, that's an art in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Forget photography, forget, you know, composing a shot, forget, you know, recording a podcast like that in and of itself mm-hmm. is like i mean i underestimated what that would be like yeah uh just in photography and doing this because it really it's like if i'm not comfortable either then mm-hmm. that shows and it's like you reveal everything about yourself and your own insecurities if like if you you don't have stuff figured out if mm-hmm. like you don't have your kind of if you're not if you're lacking in self-awareness, mm-hmm. then you, that's going to come out when talking to somebody. Oh yeah. And then they're going to feel kind of weird and alarmed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it causes you to like, I imagine you probably are extremely like self-reflective constantly. <laughs> that is an understatement. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like you're just constantly just assessing. Yes. All the time. That is accurate. But you have to. <laughs> Or, mm-hmm. or else, because if you if you come into work off, mm-hmm. people are going to know, mm-hmm. you know, and man, that's like, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and some of that self-awareness for me has been knowing when <laughs> when it's gotten to the point of like morbid introspection and I need to shut it off and I need to go do something else. <laughs> right. Because it can become it can become unhelpful too in with too much of it. But yeah, you, you have to be really aware of your own responses because that's also in the therapy context that's information there I, I it may have been the same the same podcast the the Lori Gottlieb podcast but there was a discussion of of how there are two sources of information in the room I'm, I'm pretty sure this is from her that there are two sources of information in the room the patient and, and the therapist mm-hmm. The patient hopefully is doing most of the talking, but you're also paying attention to how you are responding to that person because hopefully you're pretty in tune, you're pretty aware, you're able to let go of anything, you know, you don't like the way the person looks, hopefully you can work through that <laughs> yeah. and and let that go and not let it be a distraction yeah. and really listen to yourself because I, I can tell when a patient walks in the room, I can get the first few little hints of maybe the possibility of what their diagnosis is just through interaction because once you've done this long enough if you're in tune to that sort of thing you can feel a person's anxiety you can feel your own mood drop with their depression you can you can get this kind of you know nervous heightened energy with someone who's manic I mean there's a lot that you pick up just through your own the way that you experience someone else's presence and the opposite is true too. If someone comes in and they're sitting on the edge of their seat and they're wringing their hands and that heightens me and I wind up being anxious and sitting forward, mm-hmm. 
they get more tense. But if I sit back and take a deep breath and maybe even help them do that, my presence can start to change theirs, which is also just a crazy yeah. thing. I mean, <laughs> it, it's one of my um, favorite things that I heard about therapy was that the therapist is the therapy. And I really think that that is true. There's something that happens in that relationship with another person that is more powerful than whatever technique you decide to use. Because if you don't have that rapport and if the therapist isn't able to make you comfortable in some way or invite you into that, then it doesn't really matter what technique they're using. It's not going to connect with you because you don't have that space to, like you said, kind of forget the trappings of, of what's going on in here. That's weird. And just be with the person. Yeah. And, and, and you have to be in charge of that. Mm hmm. Yeah, man. That, so how did you like, so why are you doing this? Like what, what, I mean, you said you were interested in, in mm -hmm. it for a while, mm -hmm. but like, yeah, I mean, were you like always kind of practicing it in your mind? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I'm just realizing that I, I deftly avoided answering your question. <laughs> Good for me. Because <laughs> I don't have an answer. Um, but, okay, to, to get back to this. Yes. Uh, you did, you, you've not answered a couple of my yeah. questions about, like, Therapist about trick. the American dream. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I was fooled into thinking you did. And I know. Now, Pretty yeah, good, huh? Yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah, you're a pro. You're a professional. Um, no. I, I have not always been doing this, and I did not always think that I would. It's not what I studied in college. Um so, as you know, I studied community development, which at our school was kind right. of an economic um, development, working in areas of poverty kind of major, and was really interested in, um, I mean, how to develop resources in under-resourced communities and how to connect people to services that they didn't mm -hmm. have in their communities. Um, and then sort of fell into a mental health job right after college and then another one and then another one and started to realize that one of the biggest access problems, particularly like in rural communities, such as the one we live in now, mm -hmm. um, people just do not have access to, to mental health care. It is, it is abysmal and living in poverty is stressful so there can be even even more of a spike in, in mental health problems. Not that poverty itself is a mental illness. It's not. But it certainly makes it more complicated. It doesn't help. Right. And so there's a big access problem there. And I always had imagined that I would be doing some kind of economic development, um, maybe working with a nonprofit, starting a program, microfinance, something like that. And then I realized that maybe rather than developing a resource, I was the resource because I had started to have these mental health um, jobs and really liked that, got into a social work program. And now instead of starting an organization, I have become a person that can help other people learn how to manage their own mental health and learn how to manage their mental illnesses and learn how to have the lives that they want. And that does involve some resource connection, teaching people how to access various other things in, in their community because since I work for a, um, an agency here, but it, it was just a different way of thinking about what poverty alleviation might look like becoming the resource rather than connecting people to the resource. 
and and using the fact that I do have access to that education to give the best therapy that I can give to people who almost never can access that. There are not a lot of options here, and there certainly aren't options for the surrounding counties that we also serve. And sometimes the options available aren't that great. It's kind of like, well, you can't pay for it, so we'll give you whatever's there. Yeah. So I I have put a lot into knowing what I'm doing, and I'm still fairly new in the therapy position and have a lot to learn, but I'm not doing what I'm doing just because it's a job, but because I intentionally want to serve a population that is underserved. Yeah. So, you know, like we talked about earlier, would you, if you, if you felt the burnout, would you recuse yourself from this line of work? And like, what would you do after that? What, what, what's your, what's another world you'd want to go into? I really can't imagine one. Um, (laughs) And that, that's something that is intimidating about even, even how much I have learned over the past year of being a therapist is that you start to specialize yourself into Mm -hmm. seeing the world in a way that you can never unsee. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there there are lots of things that I could do as a social worker. I don't see myself really ever doing something that didn't have some sort of social justice component to it, though. Just yeah. because I do see such a sense of, of purpose in that. And, and it, it connects with most of the things that I value and believe in. And work has always been very important to me. So, I don't know. I, I can see myself needing some variety and some changes of, of environment at times and not necessarily always doing exactly what I'm doing now, but the longer I do it, the harder it becomes to imagine not doing it too. Why is it that, um, I mean, other than, than I guess shame and like what we talked about earlier being judged Mm -hmm. by people, like why is it that mental health takes such a backseat just in, in, I guess funding Mm -hmm. and just in life? It's like, it's kind of like, eh, you deal with that when you have to. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, that seems like number one, even before physical mm. health, because like <laughs> you can't even go to the gym mm-hmm. regularly mm-hmm. if you're not, your head isn't right. Oh, absolutely. So like, why do we like under, uh, I guess like undervalue mental health? That is a great question. And that and you're going to avoid it. Well, no. <laughs> I'm going to briefly avoid it and then I'm going to come back to okay. it. Just to say that I, th- there's a very practical side to me that has, that is one of the other reasons why I'm in mental health is because I knew from a very young age that it was more painful to be mentally ill than physically ill in, in some situations and yeah. that physical illness could lead to mental health symptoms that were far more crippling than whatever you were going through in the first place, depending on how you thought and felt about the situation. And so to me, it it's one of the highest impact areas that you can work in, in my opinion. So that works for me on a practical level. I like feeling like I'm I'm in a place that matters that much and that doesn't have the attention that it deserves. But there are a lot of reasons for that. Shame is a big one. Mental health has been so misunderstood and so stigmatized. And even the way we talk about it now, I mean, you know, that person's acting crazy 
or um, there's fear that goes along with it. A a lot of people are still afraid if they see someone who is, you know, having a psychotic episode on the street because you don't know, you don't have necessarily the awareness or the information to know what that is and what it looks like and that it's not dangerous for you. It may be dangerous for that person. So there's so much lack of awareness. There's so much shame still. There's just, there's been not as much of a research focus. It's not something that you can see in the same way that you can see certain physical illnesses. And I think a lot of it has been driven by money too. You know, I mean, there's a lot of money in researching many different physical complaints, but not as much in mental health. Um, So it's, even though it's been something that people have struggled with, I mean, I believe as long as there have been humans, right? it's something that really hasn't, doesn't even now have the same research base. Um, and just within, you know, recent decades has started, started to get more attention. Even this, this decade has probably gotten more attention than the ones before. Yeah. But still it's like, it should be way more yeah. focused on because like, at, I mean, this is oversimplifies, but attitude is everything. Mm-hmm. You can like uh, people get through amazingly horrible times yeah. by having the yeah. right mindset. Yeah. And you know, I th- we're so quick to like say like, well, he just needs to get a job, yeah. and you know, like you know what yeah. I mean. Like we we assume that everyone has the same tools that we have, absolutely, or, and and not just physical resources financially, mm-hmm. but like people have the capacity to think self-sufficiently in a way that you know quite frankly like me and you as suburban white people Mm. were were educated to think i mean we went to like a liberal arts college so that Mm. shows that we had a certain level of you know you have a certain level of like go-getiveness because you're you're pursuing education Mm. you're 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 in liberal arts school which is kind of like you know just a little murky and and philosophical Mm -hmm. in its own way. But like, just because I know, like, you know, if I was in horrible circumstances, like I could always figure something out. You have a safety net. Right. It's like the person on the street doesn't Mm -hmm. have that. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I'm better or Mm -hmm. they're worse, Mm -hmm. but it's like, they literally don't No, No one's, no one's guided them along. Like they just don't have the, like, maybe they like it doesn't occur to them to go like read a book about something they're curious about like it it may not or if they did it it wouldn't matter i mean because they they don't necessarily have the same social connections and the same safety net that that you and i had because it's not necessarily go get itness that got us into college either it's the fact that we we had safety nets. We had the finances to get us there. We had probably access to health care. We had all kinds of things that even if something goes wrong, it's going to catch us. And therefore we can take the risk on getting an education. And, and, but wouldn't you say that that's like, that's like a hundred percent, a mental, like that's a mental thing. That's like mentally. I, I believe like mentally I'm up here at least like I'm at least strong enough to know that like, you know, y- you have a safety net mm. because of the mental strength that's been given to you through education, not just education, though, but like, you know, through relationships, through, you know, parental relationships, mm. through se- like you you have 
a leg up on somebody because mentally you just have something i don't know i mean I, well i can see what you're saying but i think the relationship is is the opposite way of the way that you just described it i think i think you i'm explaining this very poorly well, well that's what i i yeah. think i get i think i get where, where you're where you're going with it but i would say the the knowing that you have the safety net the safety net really does exist it's not an idea that you've been given that oh i'm safe therefore i can because i can really believe that i'm safe i can be mentally strong no you for real are safe all mm -hmm. those things would come into play and so you have a a mental resource there a feeling of safety which is one of the biggest mental resources that you can have yeah and it can't oh, just see. be a belief that you're safe it actually has to be true which for you and I in various ways it it truly was. And so but the but here here's the thing like there's a level of confidence that you gain through those things. But like if you think you're worth a certain amount of money uh -huh. and you're really not. Uh -huh. Like you can will yourself into a better life by just believing it so innately, right? I I disagree on that. So okay. okay. So environment is so much of creating safety and beliefs about yourself that i mean it can change everything if you didn't have a truly safe environment growing up you're not going to have that sense of security as an adult or if you didn't at least have some information in your upbringing to start that cognitive pattern for you of i'm of i'm safe i'm safe i'm safe i'm safe your, your brain chemistry changes if you're under threat as a child and changes the way that it develops for the rest of your life. So just starting to think that at some point as an adult without the basis of truth as a child isn't, isn't going to work. It's not going to get you there because you don't actually have those resources to draw on. You still need to draw on the resources right. at some point. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I was... I was saying it backwards. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay. the, 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 the uh, yeah, the causality there was, I think, the other way around. Yeah, that's true. Um, but like delusion, delusion can. Have you noticed delusion making people particularly successful? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's, there's edge cases, I suppose. But yeah, yes, you're right. Of course. Yeah, you're right. We could get into some things here that we don't need to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. And, and so, what, what is your and we're, and we're running long here, but yeah, I don't care. We're going to, this is, this, this is a good conversation. Um, I've been dying to talk about this on, on, mm -hmm. on this podcast and I haven't had a great opportunity to Enneagrams. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So <laughs> I really get angry when I think about Enneagrams because I don't like the idea that my husband has baited you into getting angry. Well, over it, so. well yes, but like, I don't like the idea of being boiled down yeah. into like a couple numbers. Yeah. And, and not only that, like, and mainly it's because, you know, you go on Instagram, people are like, Oh, I'm such a five. Yeah, or like, yeah, yeah. It's like an excuse or a crutch for, yeah. for life. Like the reason I do this is because I'm a five. Yes. It's like, no, you're a five because you're those things. Yeah. But but like the idea that personalities can be boiled down mm -hmm. to numbers is a problematic one for me. Yeah. So like, what's your, th what's your thoughts on this whole thing? Okay. So I, um, 
I am certainly not an expert in this area. And there are some therapists who work exclusively from the Enneagram and use it as a, as a framework for therapy. Are they bad therapists? No, no, okay. not necessarily. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, again, it, it doesn't matter so much what your what direction you're coming from. Your therapeutic skills are not made up of only your... Okay, I didn't know if that was like a slam yeah. no, toward no, 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 other no. therapists. Okay. It is not. It okay. is not okay. at all. Okay. Because it can be helpful for some people. I I tend to, to be kind of aligned with you in that it, it can become limiting and it can it can limit growth if you think if you use it to box yourself in rather than to look for opportunities yes. to grow and, and to use it as like, Oh, here's some information about potentially how I work that I can use to develop more insight. If you use it as a jumping off point and there's something that resonates with you and you're like, okay, yeah, like I can, I can see that and here's how I can move forward from that. Then fine. If you use it to make excuses for your behavior, then that right. is very problematic <laughs> and to keep you from moving forward. Um, but I, yeah, I don't do a lot of personality type stuff myself, but I have found it to be personally helpful at, at different times if I'm trying to gain insight into my own personality. So I don't use it in therapy, but I have used it personally. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What's your number? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I also don't like to be... uh boxed in <laughs> have you not taken this so well i can't even remember if i took the full test or not i have a guess as to what i am i have one too yeah. as to what i am you do yeah oh well just i mean just from this conversation mm -hmm, i don't mm -hmm. i'm not that educated on the enneagram yeah. stuff but like i actually i have a pretty darn good guess as to what i am yeah and i'm sure <laughs> there's a guess to what i am as yeah. well well that's the thing i don't know that much about it and because i only did some research on it for my own interest and not to try to help anybody else with it i don't have as much knowledge of the other numbers but there was one that really clicked for me okay okay so what, what's your guess I don't want to. I, I don't want to like say it and potentially be offensive and have that recorded on the podcast. We <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk, talk about it later. Because like mine, like I, I, I told, I told my mom, or mm -hmm. I guess yeah, it was my mom. She's like, "That's impossible. That can't be what yours is." I'm like, "How dare you?" Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mom. Well, and that's the thing. Like internally, the way you understand yourself can be so different from the way that others perceive you too. Yeah. Which is a problem I've had with personality tests in the past. Is that I will it won't really ring true for other people's experience of me, but my internal experience, it certainly does. Right. Okay. Cause we can look like different people on the inside. Well, and it's, yeah, I guess because like w the, in the test that I took, you know, it was like, I just answered it just like so naturally, just mm -hmm. like, just whatever mm -hmm. my gut felt. Mm -hmm. And, and then like a couple of people told me it was wrong. Yeah. And I'm like, they well, don't know. Well, yeah, that that number one, and I, I called out my mom, but that's because we've had the argument about enneagrams. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, she she likes it. She's kind of with me. She doesn't like the idea of being boxed in, mm -hmm. but she but she's like, I I think it's kind of silly. Mm -hmm. I think it's like zodiac stuff, mm -hmm. kind of. Oh, that's that's another big opinion about it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it personally. I find it a little like, oh, which actually. I know we're like way over at this it's point, okay. but it's okay. <laughs> brings me back to something else. When you were asking about, you know, why, why is mental health so mm -hmm. ignored? Spirituality is another huge reason. People have been told for a long time that, well, 
just pray about it. Why are you anxious? The Bible says, don't be anxious. <sighs> uh, we could, uh, we could, we could have another, another podcast, podcast on this. And, and on, I on would, that. I gladly yeah. would, because yeah. that actually has a big part to do with why I got into mental health too. Yes. With, um, so yeah, that, but I think that is, can't go without saying that that's another big reason that we're just getting around to it now is because our, our spirituality has been misunderstood and mental health and spirituality aren't the same thing. They can complement one another. Absolutely. They're both important, but they're not the same. Well, and, and, uh, you know, growing up, uh, in, in the Christian world, Mm -hmm. it's like, when somebody has a problem and it's like you just tell them to pray about it, mm-hmm. that is like that's like passing the buck. Yes. It's like you it can saying be very dismissive. Like, you don't have to listen. You don't have to listen. You're giving them a very valid solution, mm-hmm. and so you feel good, mm-hmm. but you didn't have to do any work. Right. And it's like just say the buzzwords, yep. just throw them out there, and you didn't have to actually be with the person in their pain. Right. right. Which I think is. Again, being being in the the Christian world and my faith being important to me, I that to me that is an, a really important way that we share that we show our faith is by being with other people in their pain. Yeah, yeah, and that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. Yeah, it is. And church, I think church as we know it in at least America where we are freely able to worship and stuff is a little too easy a lot of the time and more like a club meeting in a lot of ways. Um, and so that's just, yeah, like you brought that up and I'm like, I could go for days about this, but but yeah, no, no, that's, that's, and that's just like, it's so easy to fool ourselves into thinking we're listening. Yeah. And that's why most people are such bad listeners Mm -hmm. and it's not until you figure out that like you said therapy isn't about giving advice Mm -hmm. like it's not about talking people into feeling better Mm -hmm. that don't even try that like that just like (laughs) unlocks a new universe in Mm -hmm. my mind Mm -hmm. like to hear it that way yeah it's very counterintuitive to what we're taught yeah absolutely and just the idea of listening is too. Well, thank you for doing this. Yeah, thank you. We we could we're we definitely have to do another one because yeah, this I would was like, like to. this was like way this... too easy. Like we could have had three hours of I podcast. Know. I really enjoyed this. Oh, a, good, a lot Excellent. more than I expected. So you facilitated very well. You should have your own podcast. <laughs> if that doesn't get you in trouble with yeah. something, I mean, you should do your own one day. Well. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on and. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll be on again. I guess Greg is next. Greg okay, has requested yeah, I know. to he's, be next. He's jealous if I get more attention than he does. <laughs> <laughs>